Welcome to the NCVA podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about digital. Hi, I'm Megan. I lead digital at NCVO and I'm joined by Dan. And I'm from CAST, the Centre for the Acceleration of Social Technology. So Dan, why is digital technology so important for charities and voluntary organisations? We've seen the impact that digital has had on other areas of our lives, the way in which we communicate, the way in which we buy and sell stuff. Even the look of the physical high street has fundamentally changed due to digital. That scale of change is something that charities are really looking at in terms of how they address social issues. So for charities, if we can adopt and really use technology, then we can see a massive transformation in the charitable purposes we're trying to realise. There's a technical definition of digital, which is about how computers work. But really what we're interested in here is the social definition, which is the change in cultures and practices and expectations of how services are found and used in an internet era. Yeah, the co-op has a really good definition, don't they, which I've seen some charities adopt um, to help their people understand what they mean by digital. So co-op says um, digital is applying the culture, practices, processes and technologies of the internet era to respond to people's raised expectations. And what's really great there is it helps us realise the sorts of shifts we need to undertake as charities. It's not just adding technology to what we already do, but it's a shift in those cultures and those practices and those processes that are at the heart of really making, making sense and use of, of digital technologies. Tell me more about how people's expectations are changing, Dan. If charities are going to realise the social value they're trying to create, they have to create services that match the way in which people look for support, advice, information and in new communities. And more and more, those behaviours have shifted to start with a mobile phone and a search engine. There are three and a half billion searches on Google every day. That's a really significant shift. And if charities are to ensure their brilliant work is found, accessed and used, then they need to respond to that sort of shift in people's behaviour. But it's not just about finding services. More and more, there's an expectation that services can be accessed and completed online. So from booking hotels or, or a cab through to finding new information and new communities of support. Earlier I spoke to someone who's been researching the digital skills of charities. My name is Gemma Waters and I am a senior manager looking after strategy and insights within the digital inclusion team at Lloyds Banking Group. The Lloyds Bank Business Digital Index is the UK's largest measure of digital capability of small businesses and charities. The index has been running for around four years now and was originally conceived because it was felt that there wasn't really a true understanding of how small businesses and charities were improving um, their digital skills over time. So over the last four years that we've been measuring and tracking this data, we've seen a significant improvement within the charity sector. So thinking about the organisations who we class as having high digital capability, there are actually five times more the number of charities in this space than there was in 2014, which is fantastic. When we look at how digital skills uh, for charities is compared year on year, we've seen a relative plateau. What we're actually seeing is that there are more charities than ever with high digital capability, which is great, but unfortunately there is a growing minority for whom digital skills and capability um, just isn't part of their day-to-day. We found that the charities uh, were most lacking managing information and problem-solving skills. So what that essentially means is that charities are not, or I suppose more more charities within this group, are not able to search for information on new suppliers and find the best deals. They're not able to store digital information on suppliers and customers, and they're not able to search and discover new growth opportunities 
and ways that they can save costs online. That makes me think about the skills that charities need to develop in order to be able to really understand the needs and behaviours of their users. And that's just so critical, isn't it, Dan? When we think about the digital skills that are needed, we often think about the technical skills of of coding or, or programming. But at the heart of creating really good digital products and services is really understanding users and their needs and then working out how to respond to it. So where charities need to develop skills to really make use of digital, it's around user research, really good service design, and then linking in with the digital skills to to turn those into new products and services. I hear lots of organisations say, well, that's great for the biggest charities. They've got these massive digital teams. They can have all of these experts. But what about small charities? Uh, Can they also design really good services and work in the way you're describing? Absolutely. Charities are set up to work really closely with individuals and, and communities. This is just adding some new questions to ensure you're working with them to design the services that are going to benefit them. Big charities can do that with recognised teams, but small charities have lots of interactions they can use as opportunities for user research. That's a really important point to remember, and that's why we wanted to speak to a small charity that's been able to use technology to increase their impact. My name's Jonathan Pauling. I'm the Chief Executive of Alexander Rose Charity. Uh, We're a small organisation with a long history, going back 105 years, but we've recently uh, reorientated our organisation to work on the problem of unhealthy diets and food poverty and the confluence between the two. Uh, We've come up with a scheme called the Rose Vouchers for Fruit and Veg initiative, uh, which we run in partnership with local children's centres and markets. And the project's all about giving low-income families access to fresh fruit and vegetables um, to enhance uh, the the healthy start that they can give their children uh, from an early age and to support them um, with the financial resilience to allow them um, to access a healthy diet for both them and their families. We're still a very small organisation. We have uh, five members of staff, three full-time, two part-time. Uh, Our turnover currently is around about £400,000 a year, uh, but we've been going through a very uh, rapid uh, growth um, period from the start of the uh, initiative uh, four years ago, where where the charity had basically been in cold storage for a number of years while the trustees decided what to do with it, to the point where we are now, uh, we've gone from a turnover of about £50,000 a year to £400,000 a year. The Rose Voucher Project works with local markets uh, and community food projects and some farmers markets, but not many, uh, to provide the access point for the families to get the fresh fruit and veg. So they take their Rose Vouchers, which are a paper voucher that we created, um, they're one pound denominations, they take them to the markets and exchange them for fresh fruit and veg. Most markets in the United Kingdom uh, are very traditional. Um, They are cash-based economies. So the biggest challenge for us was uh, keeping traders on board with a voucher scheme where it sometimes took them up to a month or more to get the money back from the reimbursement of the voucher. We realised as the project became more successful, as we went from pilot phase to sort of pilot 2.0 and now to a national rollout, that we couldn't achieve that scalability and that replicability if we didn't improve the processes for getting money back into the hands of traders as quickly as possible. We were losing traders because of the the delays in getting payments into them. We knew for a very long time that tech would have to play a role in how we took the project to the next stage. 
but what the tech was and how we would develop it and how we would access the funding to do that was very unclear. We did a lot of research uh, into the way that our uh, markets and our service users use the voucher um, systems and processes uh, and we developed a reimbursement application uh, that can work both on a mobile phone uh, and also on a computer, a laptop or a tablet um, to reimburse uh, the vouchers digitally rather than via paper. So basically it's saving market traders a huge amount of time, uh, it's saving paperwork and postage uh, and it's making the whole system work better for them, especially in regards to getting money into their account quickly. Uh, back at our head office, our business administrator has had to deal with all of the processing and, and paperwork associated with the reimbursement of the vouchers. Uh, she, the first um, trader that we piloted the app with, um, the, the day she sent her get payment email, um, automatic email to uh, our business administrator was like a, a revelation to her. So she is over the moon with the, um, the capacity of this piece of tech uh, to uh, make her job a lot easier and make her life a lot easier and less repetitive as well. Um, previously she had a lot of data entry and now she's been relieved of that. The, the tech company uh, did all of the voucher journey at the start uh, of the project and then we chose the key pain point amongst that whole journey uh, to um, identify where we should first act. We knew there was problems around the whole of the system where tech could work, uh, but we had to find first the, the key pain point that was really inhibiting the project. And I, I love that the, the terminology they use is minimal viable product. And they keep talking about that. We are going to produce the minimal viable, minimum viable product, which is all about making sure that you get something that works. It doesn't have bells and whistles. It doesn't look, it's not all singing and all dancing, but it does the thing that it has to do and it does it well. So the supplier for uh, our um, tech work on the project was a company called Neon Tribe. Uh, they uh, came to us uh, through a, a mixture of luck, really. We found them at a conference, uh, but uh, when we got to know them, we found that they had a good understanding of the voluntary sector, charity sector um, uh, work and uh, the benefits that tech can provide for those types of organisations. Uh, we, working with them, we found that they're a really good fit for our organisation because they believe in the product and they believe in the, the mission of our organisation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my advice to others who are looking to develop um, tech partnerships is to look for people who believe in the ethos of, of the work that you do. You want an organisation who can really work with you, explore your problems and explain really clearly what it is um, that the expertise that they bring to the piece um, and how that can help you. You need a, an organisation who's willing to upskill you even and work with you to develop your knowledge and skill level so that you can uh, input uh, into the development of the work as, alongside them as a partner as much as a, um, a supplier of services. We're taking the uh, original work that we did um, with the reimbursement of the vouchers within the markets and now we're turning our attention to look at the children's centres who are the local partners who distribute the vouchers on our behalf to low-income and vulnerable families. Uh, in the, the great thing about the way that we've developed tech is that uh, we, we always developed that uh, first piece with, with the 
future of the project in mind. Uh, so uh, when we're looking at the children's centres, we can use the same technology, the same data set that we established for the reimbursement uh, to look at the distribution. One of the things that's really interesting in that example is the relationship between Neon Tribe and Alexandria Rhodes. It's really rare to find an organisation that has the depth of expertise in a social challenge, plus really strong links to a community and, and expertise in user research, design, digital development. So partnerships are really, really crucial. This isn't just about charities commissioning agencies or suppliers, but working together to bring the best skills from each of those teams to really drive the way in which you use digital. What was great with their project is they focused really tightly on a very specific problem that digital could support them in addressing. When we think of digital, we often think about big platforms and, and kind of the scale of reach. But actually, successful digital products and services come with a really tight focus on a very specific problem. Similarly, in the charity sector, we are trying to solve really big, complex problems. And yet we know that to really address them, we have to focus in on smaller parts. Alexandra Rose have huge aspirations about health and nutrition. Their Rose vouchers are about increasing access to fruit and veg. But their really specific focus of digital was just on that reimbursement to enable more market stallholders to accept the vouchers, which would then lead to more kids having access to fruit and veg, which will lead to the nutritious kind of ambitions they have. It's clear that partnerships are really important in bringing together the right skills to make the best use of digital. But as a charity matures in its use and its understanding of how digital can support its work, those skills need to be brought in-house. There's been a lot of focus recently on the importance of digital leadership, both at a board level and within organisations. Let's hear from someone who's leading digital change within a larger charity. My name's Julie Dodd. I'm the Director of Digital Transformation and Communication at Parkinson's UK. We are the biggest Parkinson's charity in Europe. We focus on finding a cure for Parkinson's, but also working with people who are living with Parkinson's day to day. Parkinson's UK is one of the first organisations in our sector to put a digital transformation role at the top table. We did that because we believe that there is a huge role for technology both in transforming the lives day-to-day of people living with Parkinson's, but also in transforming organisations in our sector so that we're more modern, more productive, more effective in what we do. We have needed to make quite substantial change to get there, and change always has to start with people. You can make the most fantastic digital products, you can trial different digital services, but unless the people that run your organisation are thinking about the role of technology it's not going to be authentic and it won't really take at scale. So to scale, we're really focusing on supporting our people. That's both our staff, but also our network to use technology in new and different ways. And I think that's the focus of my role as the leader of digital transformation here to try and find new and better ways to do things. That comes with challenges. So certainly the phrase digital transformation can be a bit of a barrier. The problem in that is the digital word. The word digital has changed in meaning over time. It's still changing. It used to mean, well, it used to mean uh, watches that weren't analogue. And now it means the whole of the internet era and what that means. I really like Co-op Digital's definition of it because it talks about the impact of the internet era on people's expectations. That's culture, processes, tools. It's not the kit. The kit is an important part of it, but it's just the function behind the change that we're trying to see. I talked a bit about the need for people 
to be the driving force of this change. Now, you can't just ask people to change overnight and be different, be more digital. You have to support them. Now, some of that's through training, but it also means finding the right people to bring into your organisation to start demonstrating what that change looked like. We've worked really hard to bring some quite different people into this organisation. We now have a data strategy lead. Her job here is to answer the question, how can data solve Parkinson's? We think that's something that might help us find a cure. We think it's something that might help improve our service offer. It might help us run our business better. But we've never had somebody whose job was to think about that before. We've got product management people, so different than just day-to-day project management. These are people who think about how to grow, deliver, and continuously improve digital products and services so that they can scale, so that they're always good, always on, always reliable. It's fundamentally different skill sets. To bring in different people and to support people to change in an organisation has to rely on a really great working relationship between technology-minded people and HR. I would say that the relationship that I have with our director of organisational development, our head of HR, are some of the most important relationships that I personally have at Parkinson's UK. They're really supportive of the change we're trying to bring about, but it's very much a joint endeavour. As a director of a charity, the relationship I have with our board of trustees is really important to be able to affect change of any variety. We know that in our sector, dynamics between leadership teams and boards can vary from being fantastic working relationships and really productive through to being completely dysfunctional. I'm extremely lucky that I have a board that whilst they're not necessarily very technically minded, have bought into the idea that a transformation program is going to help us achieve more for people with Parkinson's. I have regular conversations with our chair about what that means. Now, sometimes that's about our technological infrastructure and getting really into the detail of how we run this organization. And sometimes that's about what the opportunities much further down the line. We could be talking about how we use robotics to help people live more independently in their homes. We could be talking about where our devices and apps strategy is going to take us in 2020 and beyond. But being able to have that conversation and it being informed is the most important thing. I've put quite a bit of effort into helping people on our board who are not very confident or potentially cynical about digital technologies um, in a place where they get that this is not about the technology itself, it's about the outcome. That's meant putting together presentations, I've done videos, I send them resources. It takes effort, it takes time, but it also takes goodwill. And if you're working in an organisation where there isn't the will to listen, then it's going to be an uphill struggle all the way. Julie's clearly invested a lot of time in building a really strong relationship with her board, which is critical. It is, and it's really important to focus on the cultural change within organisations if we're going to make use of digital. Some of these changes, particularly around culture and approach, are quite significant and require a real focus. At the heart of the digital revolution has been a culture of reuse, of of reusing things that other people have, have created, actively seeking out other people's creations, but also sharing the things that you've created. And that's the sort of culture that has created you know, huge innovation across the digital industry. But for our sector to focus on a, creating a culture of reuse is a, is a significant shift from where we currently are. And that brings challenges at operational level, but also at board level. And here's Jonathan again. We developed this piece of tech using uh, open source technology. Uh, we had to go through quite a, a quick learning curve about what open source 
was, the principles of it, the ethos, which is that uh, anything that's created is open to other developer communities to access and to utilize, uh, we, we, we could agree with and we thought is, a, is a, a, a valuable way of developing technology. But for us as a small organization, developing something innovative that no one else is doing in this space, having uh, some sort of uh, control over the final product seemed really important. We can't copyright uh, the the outcome of, of our work uh, with Neon Tribe, uh, but what you are able to do is uh, put certain uh, restrictions and use classifications on the uh, open source technology that you have developed. So in our in our case, anyone can access the technology we have developed, but if they were to utilise it for a voucher scheme for fruit and veg, they would have to call it the Rose Voucher for Fruit and Veg project. Uh, and that, for us, is a great outcome for the work that we're doing. You know, we want families, individuals, people of all kinds to be able to access healthy food more easily. And uh, if some other organization comes along, uses our tech to do that, as long as we're getting acknowledged, then we feel like we've done our job and done it well. So we had a, a challenge from a, a number of trustees who thought that the tech that we developed should be proprietary uh, and uh, and felt that open source might be a threat to our ability to 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 put that sort of copyright or, or trademark on what we were doing. But actually, you know, it's it's we're here to do um, to make social good more easily accessible. And the way that we've developed uh, our tech is open source, but it also allows the connection to the charity and the legacy of the work that we've done to be secured. Uh, people working in the tech for good field use open source technology. They like to do that. That's part of their developer ethos. So as a small organization, you need to get your head around it and understand what that means for you and what it means for your the development of, of, of your work. We've been talking about meeting the raised expectations that users have in the internet era, but there are also some really tangible benefits that all charities can realise by using digital. Gemma's research highlighted a number of these. Charities with high digital capability are twice as likely to be saving time, they're twice as likely to be increasing donations, and they're ten, ten times more likely to be saving costs. Highly digitalised charities are also twice as likely to report an increase in donations, with social media proving to be a really important component of it. Charities using social media report a 51% increase in donations year on year. Another benefit that the most digitally advanced charities also find is the improvement to back office processes. The advantage of simplified processes around taking payments and donations is that this translates into the greater ability to manage cash flow and spend. The Business Digital Index shows that there's a clear link between financial success and digital capability. So in 2017, charities with the most advanced digital capability are more than twice as likely to report an increase in donations than those with low digital capability. So there's a real opportunity if we can bring together the ambition and expertise and understanding of charities with the scale and reach and flexibility of digital products and services. Gemma also talked about some of the best approaches to building skills in the sector. So one half of organisations are seeking informal digital advice from friends and family. However, tapping into role models with high digital capability in their trade or sector presents a really great opportunity to develop best practice and also help to inspire ambition and confidence. For charities, having at least one digitally savvy board member may also bolster the 50% of charity leaders who lack confidence in introducing digital change. 
Jonathan told us about how he found support as a very small charity. Tech's a big issue for us because we don't have the in-house expertise to, to give us advice and guidance. But what we've found is by looking out there in the wider world, there is a lot of support and uh, a lot of opportunities out there for small charities to access free software, reduced rate software, hardware, advice and guidance. Also under the sort of the moniker of tech for good, there's a lot of activity going on out there. There's a lot of forums, um, uh, events, conferences that are going that are taking place with people who are working in this space, who are interested in how tech can help uh, achieve social good, support the outcomes that charities uh, and the third sector organisations are trying to achieve. Uh, and I think if you if you really are interested in this area, then just taking a quick look. Of online at what those what resources are available and what organisations are working in the space, you'll find um, not only knowledge and guidance, but you might get lucky and find a funder who's interested in your work and, and wants to support you. Dan, we've heard loads of great stuff in this podcast, but if there's one thing that people listening could do next, what do you think it should be? A fundamental principle of developing good digital products and services is starting really small and building from there. So the first step is just to start. And I think the first start is to talk to your existing community, your existing beneficiaries, and to understand their existing uses of digital tools in their everyday lives. And you can identify how you can best deliver your services that match their expectations and their needs. I think that's a great recommendation to end on. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback and look out for the next episode. (laughs) 